So Christmas, who needs it? Um, we probably all need it. Uh, I'm ready for it. I hope you guys are ready for it. And um, I love baptisms, by the way, as Pastor Dan mentioned. I did get a little bit wet um, and the water splashed down and down the front of the waders, which is a pastor problem. I did wonder if I had some other jeans. I don't, but fortunately it's not bad enough to where I had to borrow some from somebody else. Anyway, Christmas is something I've been thinking about for a long time uh, this, uh, this year. And I think it's because it's a time to reset. It's a time to re-engage, a time maybe to, to think about giving ourselves to the Lord all over again, maybe starting this next year uh, in a way that maybe we wish that we had lived this year but weren't quite able to. Uh, it's a time for me for reflection. It's a time for evaluation. It's a time for me to be really thankful that God changed everything by sending Jesus. And so today we're going to talk about the story of Christmas, but it's not really just the Christmas story. We're going to begin at the beginning. And when I say the beginning, I mean the very beginning, the beginning in Genesis, we're going to be talking about the first time that God suggested or promised that there would be a solution to the problem of sin, the problem of evil, the problem that Adam and Eve created in the garden as they were deceived by Satan, as they were cursed by God, as they were put out of the garden and not allowed to come back in, that it was God's solution. And it starts way back in the beginning. And sometimes we don't think about it. We just think of the Christmas story as one that starts in the gospels but it starts so much earlier than that. And so you and I are gonna to look together at a time and in a place that's very, very different than the time and place that we live in. As a matter of fact, it's so different that you and I have a hard time interpreting or understanding the context of the 2000 years of Old Testament because it's just not the way we live. But we do watch TV shows and movies that help us understand the environment, the context, the way that, that people existed back in this day. The code of ethic, the way that people determine right and wrong, the way that people determine their actions and what they chose to do, who they chose to kill, what they chose to rob or steal, and what they chose to protect was all based on family. Now, many of us have watched shows. It started off back when I was a kid, a show I used to watch called Bonanza, right? There was a family and everybody protected their family. And if you protect your family, then that's the ethic and everything is determined by what it means to your family. And then there was the Big Valley that I watched a little bit and they had another family, the Barclays, and you guys are nodding your heads. So for you youngsters, perhaps it's Yellowstone and the Duttons. I don't know what shows you choose to watch, but it's all about the family. It's all about the clan. It's all about the kinsmen and you protect your own. If you have to take a life, you take a life if it's not in the best interest of your family. And that really is what determines what you choose to do, what you choose to preserve, what you choose to value. Family was security, family was safety, family was everything. And that's the way it was in the Old Testament. We have a hard time sometimes understanding the violence in the Old Testament because we live on this side of Christmas but it's just the way that it was. When we look at snapshots of culture and time and we see the wars and we see the invasions and we see the slavery and we see all of the atrocities, well, we're reminded in scripture that God allowed it because men had really hard hearts and it's what happens when they're just doing whatever they want without any instruction or interference from a God who has different plans. So the story of the Old Testament, the story of Jesus is the story of God reaching into a world that's corrupt, that's cursed, that's broken and redeeming us 
through Jesus. But it took him a long, long time. So we're going to start by taking a look at the first promise, the first promise given to a man who lived among a people, his kinsmen, his family, a group of people that were his security, a group of people that were his past. He knew where he was going to be. He knew who he would die for. He knew who he, easy for me to say, was supposed to protect. His name was Abram, or we call him Abraham. And we see in Genesis 12, one through three, God coming to Abraham and starting to lay out his solution, his promise of a savior and ultimately redeeming humanity, allowing peace between us and between God. The Lord said to Abraham or Abram, go from your country. Now, as I've told you, that's a big deal. Leave your people, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you sometime in the future. Isn't that how God works? He asks us to do something. He asks us to step out in faith. And he says, I'll show you where you're going, but I'm not going to really show you till you need to know. And sometimes it's not until you get there. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Now, those of you who know your Bible, you know that Abraham didn't have any kids at that point, about 75 years old when God called him. But not only did he not have his own great nation started, um, you know, he really didn't have any understanding of God. His father was not a God-fearer. His town was not a Christian town, as we would call it. They didn't worship God. They worshiped their own gods. He wasn't familiar with this creator, the sustainer, with the God who is everywhere, who knows everything, who's all-powerful. And God is tapping him on the shoulder. Why did he choose Abram? I don't know, but he did. And he says, you leave your people and I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that's a big promise. And it's the first time we see this hint of the foreshadowing of Jesus, who's going to be the redeemer, the connector, the sustainer, the one who bridges the gap and the picture is beginning to be painted. But I'm telling you, when I say it took a long time, it took 2000 years. And you might say, well, this sounds great. Abraham's going to be promised a happy life. He's going to be promised easy pickings. He's going to be promised God's blessing throughout. And we see the cycle of life with God, of obedience to God, of disobedience with God that really reminds us of a couple things. First of all, and you'll see this throughout this thread that's woven throughout the Old Testament, that God looks for people who are humble and who want what he wants, but more than wanting what, what they want. People who are willing to serve both God and others instead of demanding to be served by God and others. He looks for people who are willing to be a little risky in some people's minds, perhaps even a little reckless, but who'll step away from the known and go into the unknown because of what we know about God. Now, the amazing thing is that Abraham, Abram didn't know God. And so literally this is the way I visualize his, his conversion, his decision to become a follower, his, well, his choice to start this journey. I, I, I literally believe that he just took a foot and he's like, all right, I'm going to go. And he stepped and he said, I don't know you, but I'm going to trust you because something inside me just feels like this is right. I'm hearing your voice for the first time, but it's like, I've heard it my whole life. I don't understand what I'm doing, but I'll leave what I know. I'm ready to go. And he takes that first step of faith. And as he walks, just like a little baby, he stumbles a little bit and he gets a little stronger. He gets a little better. He gets a little bit more faithful. And pretty soon he has a kid. That was a miracle. 
when he had a baby because he was an old man by that time. And God promised him that he would have a son. After all, he was going to be the father of many, many nations. He had a a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac was an amazing baby. And there's not a whole lot in the Old Testament that's written about Isaac. But we know the promise of God was passed from Abraham on to Isaac as the firstborn. And we see Isaac go through his life. And we don't know a ton about him as much as I wish we did. Um, But we do know that he's counted as faithful because even in the New Testament, when God says, I'm the God of, he says, I'm the God of your fathers, right? Of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's counted as faithful. He's counted as one of the Old Testament greats. We know that Isaac um, had a, a couple of boys when he was about 60 years old. And these two boys, man, you want to read this story in Genesis. You want to feel better about your own family. Christmas is a a time when we're faced with dysfunction in some cases, right? Um, Every family is dysfunctional. It's just some are fun in their dysfunction and some are just dysfunctional. But all of us have a little dysfunction. And these families will make you feel better about your kids, about your parenting. It'll make you feel better about your, your relationship with God. I mean, these stories are stories that you literally would not believe unless you read them for yourself. And you see these two boys who grew up in competition with each other. And the birthright was passed on to the slightly older one, Esau. And we see that Jacob, because he wanted the birthright, the promise, he wanted the inheritance, tricked Esau in a moment of weakness, tricked his dad into being blessed. And then God, for whatever reason, honored that or continued to pass this blessing on and he he gave it to Jacob. And we see a lot about Jacob in the Bible, or at least we know a little bit more about his character. We know how hard he wanted to work to get married. We know that he lived a life that in some cases was unlikely, but in other cases just seemed destined. And he had some kids, a bunch of kids, The promise was passed from Abraham on to Isaac, on to Jacob. And then finally you see these 12 sons. And these 12 sons grew up, again, functionally dysfunctional. Jacob, the second to the youngest, or Joseph, excuse me, hated by his brothers. Somebody who didn't have the sense not to brag about all the great things that he felt like were going to come to him in life. How he was better, how his brothers would bow down to him. Made his brothers so mad that they decided they had to either kill him or sell him. Again, I said it'd make you feel better about your parenting. My boys have had a lot of fights growing up. But I don't think that they ever had that discussion between the two of them. Do I kill him or do I sell him? I think we fell short of that, at least in in some way. They said, well, if we sell him, we make some money. If we kill him, we don't make any money. So let's just go ahead and sell him. So they sold him. And we see Joseph. When we see Joseph went into a servanthood or slavery where he was accused of a crime he didn't commit, thrown into prison and he didn't deserve it, where he was remembered and forgotten and remembered and forgotten. And he looked to God and he said, God, why are you taking so long? Now, that's the theme in the Old Testament, the theme throughout these lives. I know you're promise. I know God, what you say you're going to do. I know that Jesus, of course, they didn't understand quite who Jesus was yet. I know he's coming. I know there's a solution. I know there's peace, but when are you going to do it? Because it's taken so long. Joseph, as he's in prison, now God's going to remember me. Then he's forgotten. Now things are going to get better. Then he's forgotten. Maybe now finally things are going to take a turn for the better. And then 
he's forgotten. When you look at it as a casual observer, you don't really see God's hand at work in a lot of these stories or situations. But when you look at it with a careful, thoughtful eye, you see that even though God looked like he was silent or distant, he was never disconnected or separate. That God was always working. It just wasn't always where they were looking. You ever sense that in your own life? Sometimes you look at your own life and you say, God, you seem silent and you seem a little distant. It's because we're looking for him to do something that he's not ready or wanting to do. And the things that he is doing, oftentimes we miss because we're not looking in the right place. Well, Joseph, he finds himself elevated to a point where he was in a great leadership role in Egypt. And sure enough, some people would call it karma, but I don't believe in karma. I believe that God's hand was working all things together for good, brought his own brothers who had sold him into slavery before Joseph, who controlled the crops and the food, and they were gonna beg for their lives and livelihood because they were starving from a famine. Joseph was able to, to bless them. One of the most powerful verses in the entire Old Testament we read and hear in this story what Satan intended for evil, God used for good. So Genesis ends, and then there's a gap, and I'm talking about a gap gap. Like you and I, when you have a gap in your memory, and I'm 50, almost 52 years old, my memory's not, I mean, it's not gone. It's just not what it used to be. And if I say, you know, I had a conversation with somebody three weeks ago, it might've been two months ago. I, I don't know. Sometimes the time just sort of, you know, you just don't know for sure. And, and, you know, gaps are weeks at a time. This was like several hundred years that goes by. And you see Egypt being a superpower, being dominant. The, the Jews, this, this fractured group of people sort of living around and among the land. And in Exodus, all of a sudden, we read a story. We read uh, an excerpt from a narrative where the Bible tells us that Pharaoh decided that these Jews are becoming too strong, that they're becoming too much of a threat, that we're going to go ahead and try to turn the screws on them a little bit, that we're going to try to make sure that we can control them. And so they enslaved them officially and oppressed them ultimately ending up in a murder plot and execution of innocent babies. And time passes and people wait and people are looking for the solution and people don't feel very blessed and the Jews don't feel like that they're gonna be a light to all the nations. They are wondering why God seems to be taking so long. And then do you know who pops up on the scene? Moses. Moses pops up on the scene. And he starts life in a really unlikely kind of a way. You wouldn't look at this little baby who had a death sentence hanging over him, who was going to be executed and go, that's the guy God's going to use to free the people. But God doesn't look for likely people. He looks for humble people who are willing to be servants. And that didn't always describe Moses, but it ultimately ended up describing him very well. You know the story, he was miraculously taken from the river by Pharaoh's daughters, brought into Pharaoh's home. He committed a murder that he thought was motivated by the right reasons, but it was the certain wrong execution. He ran from God, ran from himself, ran from his past, out into the wilderness where he wandered for years and years and years and years. 
And God tapped him on the shoulder and he said, hey, you want a second chance? And he said, nope, not me, I'm done. He believed that failure was a person, not an event. And God said, listen, I'm not looking for you to be perfect. I'm just looking for you to be humble. I'm looking for you to be useful. I'm looking for you to be willing to do what I want you to do more than what you want to do. And I want you to do it in my way. And so Moses was like, all right, let's do it. But you're gonna have to do all the heavy lifting, God, because I can't. And God said, that's exactly where I want you. Have you ever felt like that? I guarantee you that's the best place to be. God, you can do what you want. I can't. So we see Moses. Moses, miraculously, through God's power, led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and out into the wilderness where they had a chance to cross over into the promised land. And we know the story. The story was that they didn't take the chance. And so they were punished and wandered around for a while longer and came back and got a second chance and finally entered Canaan. Canaan was the promised land and the children of Israel thought finally we're going to be this nation. Finally, we're going to be blessed. Finally, God's going to do all these things that Abraham told Isaac, who told Jacob, who told Joseph, who told, I mean, who passed it down from generation to generation to generation and people waited and watched and went to war. Man, you talk about tribalism, you talk about, about infighting, you talk about wars, you talk about raiding parties, you talk about brutality. I mean, they experienced it in this promised land. And there are two types of people in life. You got your people who just kind of walk through life like robots who just go from one meal to the next. Just get up and go to work and don't think about it. None of those kind of people are in here. You're the other kind of people. The people who step back and think. The ones who ask the hard questions, what is life about? Why am I here? What is meaning and significance? How am I gonna end this life without regret? The thoughtful people, they step back and they scratch their head and they say, God, I'm a little disappointed. I love you, I trust you. I see how powerful and strong you are, but I'm a little bit disappointed because you hadn't done all this yet. We don't feel like a nation who's on top of the world. We don't feel like an example to everybody. We don't feel like a light. And time passes. And God's at work. Even when he seems distant, he's not disconnected. And after a period of time, and we're talking about 2,000 years that this whole chronology of events unfolds within, Saul comes on the scene. Children of Israel said, we need a king. Saul wasn't a great king. God didn't want him chosen in the first place. The children of Israel wanted him because he was handsome and looked the part and he pulled well and people thought they could follow him and it was disaster. But then David showed up. Do you know David? And David, an unlikely boy with very little notoriety prospects, proved himself humble and faithful and willing to serve. And God elevated him to a point where he was king over Israel. And all of a sudden Israel had peace because David, to borrow a phrase from contemporary politics, brought peace through superior firepower. Better armies, better soldiers, better warring techniques. And I mean, God blessed them and they defeated their enemies and they had a, a 
period, a snapshot, a glimpse where they thought the promise God gave to Abraham was going to be fulfilled. Now's the time. David passed the throne to his son, Solomon, who was known as the wisest man who ever lived. It was his superpower, God-given superpower. Wise, the wisest man who ever lived, could discern and determine between cases, issues, just knew what to do. Live in a time of peace, rebuild the temple, honor God. Solomon, who may have started out humble and dependent and faithful, he had a problem. He was a guy, which probably is a problem right off the bat, but he was a guy who had very little restraint when it came to women, which we know is a problem for any guy. And God said, you're gonna have to take care of this because if you don't, it's gonna ruin you. Can't you just stay with the wives I've given you? I mean, they didn't just have one, they had a bunch. Can't you just stay with the people who I've allowed you to be with and brought into your life? Just stay with these women. Uh, he must have been a, I mean, like the consummate womanizer because the numbers are staggering. And you read these stories and you're like, good gracious, talk about pushing God's buttons. And sure enough, his disobedience, along with a straying, wandering attention from the children of Israel, took them into another period, ended up in a divided kingdom where the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom were fractured, Israel split into two, the Southern kingdom totally abandoning God in some ways, the Northern kingdom right on the verge of just leaving him behind saying, we thought it was right, it's not right. We thought it was gonna happen, it's not gonna happen. God, you're not who you said you are. I mean, tension. And all this time, about 1,200 years. Okay, let's move forward to the next slide. Then we see a prophet. Now, who's a prophet? A prophet's somebody who God taps on the shoulder and says, I want you to tell my people something. The prophet goes, what do you want me to tell them? And God says, listen, tell them exactly what I say. Don't tell them what you want to tell them. Don't tell them what you think I want to tell them. Tell them exactly what I say. That's the prophet's job. For a period of time, you're my spokesperson. God spoke through Isaiah. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, to this fractured people, to this group that couldn't even get along, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then the Babylonians invade and the rebuilt temple was ransacked. And then God sent another prophet, Malachi. And Malachi stood up and said, I'll speak for God. And Malachi prophesies and says, God hasn't forgotten you. The promise still exists. Don't base your belief on what you feel or see. You think God's distant, but he's not. He's not disconnected. You think he's silent, but he still speaks. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets and every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. But then Israel was overrun by Babylonians, Persians, and Greeks. And in 63 AD or BC, General Pompey made Jerusalem part of Rome and to add insult to injury, history tells us, he rode his horse up the stairs, the southern steps 
of the rebuilt temple, which had been torn down and rebuilt and torn down and rebuilt, into the Holy of Holies, the inner part of that temple, because he wanted to see why all these Jews were willing to die. The Romans had gods you could see that carved out of stone and gold, and he wanted to see what this was all about. And he rode in, burst through the curtain, and saw an empty room. And the Jews became a laughingstock. The Jews are the, the people who worship the God in the empty room, the invisible God who doesn't exist, the God who doesn't have a name. They say there's only one. I didn't see any. And they did not feel like a blessed people. They didn't feel like a nation who was going to be a light to the generations. They didn't feel. But God was at work. I want to give you an example here real quick, an illustration or demonstration of the way I see this story from the very beginning until this point. Because there's a tension here. 400 years of silence again after Malachi spoke where things didn't look like God was going to come through. I want to introduce you to somebody. Come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Hey. Hey, come here. Hey, hey, I know. Is she smiling? Can you see her smile? Come here. Come here, Daisy. All right. So this is Daisy. And Daisy is a standard poodle. Um, I don't like telling a lot of people that because um, I want a tough dog. And Daisy's pretty tough, but standard poodle gives her a bad name. Daisy's learning to walk on a leash. See, Daisy, come here. Come here. And Daisy is like a cannonball at the end of the leash. Daisy's got a pretty good amount of freedom. She's got 20 feet of freedom. And she even has a little bungee at the end, right? I call this the bungee of grace. Because when she gets to the end, it gives her a little bungee there before it actually pulls. But the thing is that if Daisy gets to the end of this leash and she pulls, come here, hey, sit, that a girl. If she, sit, if she pulls too hard for too long, well, something happens. I have this, this choke chain around her neck. And this chain she doesn't even know is there as long as she's walking within the 20 feet perimeter of the leash. The choke chain doesn't bother her a bit when she runs to the end of the leash and bounces off of the, the bungee of grace. The choke chain only bothers Daisy when she gets to the end of the leash, sorry Daisy, and she pulls so hard that it begins to choke her. And she looks back at me and she's like, look, I'm choking. And I'm like, Daisy, you're pulling. And she says, but I'm choking. And I said, but you're pulling. If you'll stop pulling, you'll stop choking. And she says, if you'll let me go, I won't choke. Now, a bad master may let her go to run the neighborhood and wreak poodle havoc all over Prairie Trail. But I'm not that kind of master. I'm the kind of master that knows that she's only safe, that she's only secure, that she's only accomplishing her purpose when she's walking within the perimeter of the leash. But God showed his people that as long as they stayed within the perimeter of the leash, walking with him, man, it was a beautiful journey. But when they got to the end and started to pull, it brought consequences and they begin to choke. 
Well, the people were choking. There were faithful people. Come here. There were people who weren't faithful. There were people who were looking for Jesus and people who weren't looking for Jesus. There were a lot of people who felt like Jesus was never going to come. And then, and I love the way the apostle Paul words it in Galatians, when the set time had fully come, my goodness, people, fully come. 2,000 years of drama in history. 2,000 years of great obedience and, I mean, stunning defeat. 2,000 years of God's blessing and also the consequences of a people who pulled against the leash. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, and born under law, Jesus. And you say, so what? Jesus was called Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. So God says, listen, no more prophets, no more priests. I'm gonna take care of this myself. I'm coming down, right? Not to punish you and judge you and correct you and jerk on the leash, but to show you what love and grace really looks like. To provide the way for you to be right with me, to give you a personal relationship that you've wanted for so long but have been unable to have to free you from having to be religious and allow you to experience a relationship. That when Jesus came, who was in fact God, 100% God and 100% man, and was born into an unlikely family, in an unlikely city, in a substandard location, in a way that no one would expect. It literally changed everything. The period of waiting was over. Jesus had come, God with us. Let's look together at Luke 1, 26 through 33 as we close. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. I'd love to see this moment, by the way. Love to be a fly on the wall. This is all we have. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. <laughs> understatement of the year and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now, here you go. Watch this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is offering us the opportunity 
to be part of God's family, the family members of the kingdom that will never end. The way to have significance and meaning as we humbly serve and love the world around us, pointing them to the truth that tangibly began on the day that we celebrate as Christmas. And the promise is that anyone who confesses their sin, believes who Jesus is and agrees to follow him instead of following ourselves or wherever else we follow, that we won't perish, but we'll have eternal life as a citizen of the kingdom of God. So Christmas started a long time ago. And we get to celebrate an event the event that we know many of us have experienced, the most important event that's ever happened in all of human history. So who needs Christmas? Well, the world needs Christmas. Next week, you'll see that God needed it, and we do too. Father, thank you for my friends.